law of evolution in corporate America seems to be survival of the unfittest. Well, in my book, you either do it right or you get eliminated. In the last seven deals that I've been involved with, there were 2.5 million stockholders who have made a pre-tax profit of $12 billion. Thank you. I am not a destroyer of companies. I am a liberator of them. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind, and greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 40 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And uh, it's 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 been a pretty slow news week since the last time we recorded. Uh, I mean, like, you know, we were scouring the web, looking for things to talk about. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know, man. Like, Ed, did anything happen to you this week? You know, I went online to my favorite casino, uh, the stock market. Uh, we, you know, uh, basically, uh, we're over here with us of, um, I don't know, what is it? Reddit, the hedge funds, day traders, uh, trying to uh, squeeze any money that we could outside out of <laughs> hedge funds. I mean, not me personally, I wasn't, I wasn't buying GameStop like some of these people, but it, yeah, that was a, that was a part of the week, man. It was so I'm much. Uh, part of it was fun and like to see them squirm but also like not fun seeing like hordes of people get involved in the stock market because you know you don't want that to happen no no definitely don't want that to happen institutional well it's funny like these institutional investors they they do want people involved in the stock market but not in any kind of coordinated way right they just want the random chaos of of retail trade flow but nothing coordinated man like you know, we can't we can't be having all these little individual investors mm-hmm. uh, colluding with each other, buying options and, and and squeezing shorts. That's that's not good. Let me, let me just quote real quick a, a really insightful tweet mm-hmm. I saw earlier in the week by a Business Insider columnist Josh Barrow, <laughs> who said, Please. "I know people think this is fun, but why do we have a stock market?" So productive firms can raise capital to do useful things. Detaching stock price from fundamental value, GameStop is now worth almost as much as Best Buy. It blew Best Buy out of the fucking water. Uh, This makes markets serve the real economy worse. Mm. Mm. So I know know a lot of y'all were out there having fun, GME, riding that rocket ship. Did you ever think about the stock market's feelings? <laughs> did, did you ever think about how you're doing violence to the stock market? You know, you're uh, triggering Josh Barrow. <laughs> yeah. Did, did you guys see Jason uh, Jason Kalanakis uh, tweeting about it? 
What do you say? Uh, we're talking about how hedge funds were losing money and stuff like that. I tweeted at him, but I don't think he saw it, but I put something along the lines of, well, if you're losing money and you're broke, you can always go hop on one of those platform apps and make a little extra money. Yeah, (laughs) that's privatized unemployment right there. Yeah, it was really interesting to see a lot of people... I think, you know, there's been a there's been competition over what narrative is going to take hold. As a result, we've lost sight of, you know, with GameStop, there was price manipulation from the very beginning on the hand of the hedge funds. I mean, GameStop is not worth $23 billion, right? But it also was not worth like 3 or $4 a share. It was being artificially suppressed because it was being shorted greedily. And like the reason this whole thing started was because someone realized that, realized it had done better than expected during the pandemic, realized it was not distressed, that it had healthy cash flows, that it has sitting on money, that it was cutting costs, and that, you know, it was a good investment worth a little bit more in fair value, but that the shorts were, you know, fucking it up. So they did a long position. They did a long position, and it it turned out to eventually rally, (laughs) rally hordes of people and other traders to their position, right, to make some money out of uh, the people who got caught you know, with, you know, stupid, being stupid, essentially. It, it's a it's a really perfect example of, you know, this like acceleration of spectacle mm-hmm. uh, in finance and tech and politics, just everywhere, right? Like, I mean, you know, this this episode is like after everyone's already forgotten about GME, right? Like this is, this is, this is last week's spectacle. But I think a problem with trying to do real-time analysis and, and maybe one of the benefits of having a little bit of hindsight, even if it's just a few days, um, is to really try to take stock, pun intended, uh, mm. of, of, of what actually happened, right? Because like, you know, I, I think I, like you, and like so many other people, were like every day fixated on like what new thing was happening with the GME rocket ship, uh, you know, learning more about shorts than most people had ever thought about in their entire lives, mm. thinking more about money and flows and stocks mm-hmm. and, and financial instruments uh, more than they ever had in their entire lives. And, and you know, it was, it was fun, but it was really hard uh, to try to come up with like a take, right? Because it's like your take was was cold by the, by the end of the day, by lunchtime, right? Mm-hmm. Because like something new had happened. Yeah, you know, there was, and that ended up, resulting in a lot of sloppy takes um but also there are times where it's like because we had incomplete information a lot of theories got passed around i remember i believed you know until we learned later at the time that it was like oh robin hood shut off the trading because you know their biggest customer is citadel securities citadel securities is created by ken griffith ken griffith also created a hedge fund citadel which uh had to bail out melvin which was the massive short, one of the massive shorters of GameStop. So, you know, people had been connecting dots and like putting forward a theory that actually Citadel like leaned on Robin Hood to get them to halt trading. When in reality, it was just like because of the volatility of the stocks, it was, they had collateral requirements that the clearinghouses, the stock clearinghouses demanded of them to be able to trade the stock to prove they wouldn't go insolvent, that they couldn't meet it. So they had to be like, okay, no more trading because we don't have the money. Like, you know... Stuff like that, those in-moment developments prevent or make it harder for like a really clean analysis or Mm -hmm. give people room to want to have a deeper, deeper analysis. And I think as a part, like we've lost sight of like the core parts of the story, right? Hedge funds, institutional investors, these are the things that after GameStop, 
you know, loses, relevance or discussion or salience as a talking point are going to persist and have an influence on our, on our day-to-day lives, right? I think this is the mission of TMK here as well, is that, uh, you know, the one of the, the main users who had like a, you know, something like a $55,000 position on GameStop. Yeah, deep, um, fucking deep fucking value. value. That's right. Uh, and, you know, at some point, uh, who knows what, like, what or if he's closed out of his position, you know, maybe he's had those diamond hands and he's just kept his long, you know, TMK, we're, we're trying to bring you deep fucking analysis. Here, <laughs> yeah, right? Like that's, that's what we're trying to do. One of the things that I was thinking about while, while the GME rocket ship was going off and while that was happening, and, and in particular, uh, a source that I continually find the, the most illuminating on all this is Matt Levine's Money Stuff newsletter in Bloomberg, oh, yeah. right? Like, you know, he's pumping out like a 3,000 word <laughs> newsletter uh, every single weekday, but yeah. doing so in a way that I think does a really good job of like aggregating the takes without falling into the abyss of giving these like quick takes and really just trying to explain like this is the actual like operations of what's going on here is how all of this works i found that really helpful and one of the things that he's been talking about for ages and and has just become so much clearer in, in its importance is uh the rise and power of index funds right of these like huge asset managers and this was this was one of the big takeaways i think from uh, the GME rocket ship. Yeah, there, there's like individual, you know, these day traders on Wall Street bets um, who you know, multiplied their positions, you know, 1,500% or whatever, right? Like taking $50,000 and turning that into what, $22 million or whatever. But again, like, like the real winner here is a company like BlackRock, right? A company like BlackRock that had, um, as of the latest figures I saw was as of like like mid-2019 owned like 13% of GameStop, right? What that means is that their position, you know, once the price of GameStop surged, they, their value went from a $174 million stake in the company to a $1.4 billion stake. Actually, double company. double that because that that's right. at um that's at 148 and it closed at 320 about yeah. I think. We're we're looking at um so we're looking at close to $2.9 million position, which is insane <laughs> it's insane right like absolutely blowing away everyone else except for the 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 new ceo of gamestop who i think had you know a uh, a percentage stake somewhere in like you know in the maybe the 20 percentile or the 30 percentile right but but uh, but uh, but a lot right but but the key here is that the real winner is these index funds that have massive amounts of stakes in these companies and that's that was not a because of a really smart play by the asset managers at BlackRock, right? Where they were like lurking on Wall Street bets and they were like, oh shit, like this is taking off. Let's 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 climb into the rocket ship and spend some of the capital we have to buy a huge stake. No, that that 13% stake they had in GameStop, the kind of stake they have in every company, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the key here is when some hot hands hit, when there's a winning streak, they don't have to be smart about what company they invest in because they invest and everything they own the whole damn casino right like like you might be sitting at the high stakes poker table uh and you're having a winning streak and you're raking in those chips 
But at the end of the day, they own the poker table, they own the casino, they own the, you know, the 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 trading of those chips into real money, right? Like they own the whole structure, the whole operations. Um, that you, you know, if you're if you're a deep fucking value, getting a little lucky in, they don't have to be lucky because they they've got the ultimate hedge, right? Their hedge is the whole market. Right. Take this week with GameStop and the mass sell. So, you know, there were hedge funds, right? Other vehicles that had short positions and to cover them had to sell off long positions that they had elsewhere. So there was discussion about whether or not, okay, BlackRock may have individually benefited from GameStop, Vanguard, Fidelity. These companies may have individually benefited from GameStop, but they were down on all their other ETFs. So the exchange traded funds that they have, you know, the downs that they have there are negligible at best, right? Uh, there may be, they're not even a percentage decrease, right? They are, they're few, they're like, you know, 0.2, 0.2 points off of where they were last week, um, despite the massive volatility and despite the mass selling, which as we'll talk about is, you know, a consequence of a really aggressive return strategy, well, aggressive strategy, portfolio strategy that they have that actively and passively allows them to yield above market returns, right? It really is that they are winning no matter what, you know, they win both because, you know, they hold the stock. They're not going to liquidate it. But if they wanted to, they can lend it at this inflated price to other places and then collect collateral from them. Um, they can charge fees in proportion to the uh, price of the shares. Uh, they can uh, liquidate some of their positions if they wanted to. Uh, they're in position to make hundreds of millions of dollars without having to liquidate any part of their of of their position. And this is this is you know if this were to happen at any company in which they have a large stakeholder position, and the same would be true. Which is you know I think the larger point, which is like they can have some of these down of half of one percent or half of half of one percent in their various ETFs, but they make that back more than easily through the other ways through the fees, through the holding of assets, uh, through the position that they have in of itself, that it's not that it really is that they've just won and they're the beneficiary no matter what. You had a quote in one of your essays, uh, in one of your articles for Motherboard, where you said, you know, it's major quote, it's major investors are talking about GameStop, it's major investors are private equity firms, hedge funds, and asset managers like BlackRock, Greenville Capital, and Vanguard Group. We could take that sentence and apply it to essentially any company in existence, yeah. mm -hmm. right? Any company, or at least any company that is listed on either the S&P 500, right, which is the largest 500 companies um, in the U.S., uh, or the equivalent, which I forget the acronym, but it's the it's like the 2000 um, like smaller companies, right? Which is which GameStop was part of this this like index of 2000 like smaller firms. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we could take that sentence that it's major investors or private equity firms, hedge funds, and asset managers apply it to any of his companies, and that sentence is very likely to hold true. And I think this is a key lesson that I'm hoping people take away from the GME spectacle and and if not then we're going to really drive it home in this episode and the next one yes. um mm -hmm. is that the entire market 
the entire market, the line itself is owned by about a dozen investors, right? About a dozen firms. And we can kind of boil that down to about a dozen CEOs of a dozen in, uh, in investors own vast majorities huge stakes in the entire market, which is so wild, right? It's such a wild way to organize ownership stakes. Mm -hmm. That's the way our efficient market has to work, Jathan. I mean, how are you going to do, do efficient price discovery? Uh, how are you going to do efficient capital raising and allocation? I mean, isn't this the whole purpose of the stock market? You think this is fun and games? You think this is a joke? Fuck what you heard! Yeah, you know, I think Doug Henwood had a really good point in response to Josh Barrow, where, you know, there was this discussion about um, how capital markets uh need short selling because it helps keep trim fat off the markets essentially right companies but the vast majority what is it like over the past 20 years it, i don't even think it's been a trillion dollars uh has been raised in ipos but well almost 20 trillion has been spent on stock buybacks you know what what are you talking about when you say uh capital markets are you know the are integral to the efficiency of capitalism they're really just like a mechanism for uh flushing and you know rewarding investors and shareholders right and transferring wealth into their pockets not into like optimizing the firm like stock buyback doesn't optimize the firm in any way shape or form right it just it just gives money <laughs> it just gives money yeah. to them it just juices the stock price, right? Mm -hmm. And so the people that hold stock get the benefit from it. I, a friend of mine, when all this was happening, you know, she was asking me, like, what's the point of short selling? Like, this, this seems like completely like wasteful it seems it just seems like some like financial bro alpha shit right where it's like you know i'm short selling because like i know something about this company that no one else does and i'm going to convince them that this company is actually doing fraud um or it's uh or it's actually not as valuable as everyone thinks it is uh and and you know so there there does seem to be this kind of like pissing contest you know the most alpha of the alpha financial bros are going to be the ones doing short selling. Uh, and, you know, I tried to put on my my useful idiot business columnist brain. Uh, mm. And I was like, well, you see short selling actually, you know, it has a really good purpose here because it's like privatizing regulation and investigation into companies, right? Like the short sellers, you know, spend all these resources doing research in the companies and they, they provide, you know, all this public information uh, about companies and their, their real operations and blah, blah, like that's the, that's like the, the econ, like finance 101 mm -hmm. um, explanation of what short sellers do, right? They, they are privatized form of investigation and regulation. They course correct in the market, right? They are helping to find the actual uh, real value and real price, discover discover the prices of things through that. But again, that that is like saying that the purpose of the stock market is to raise capital um, and is to discover the price of things um, and is to provide a way for uh, retail investors to put some of their money in the stock markets for their retirements right but but mm -hmm. that is so clearly that 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 only makes sense if you uh just digest the econ 101 and finance 101 textbook uh, you 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 take it into yourself, and you never ask any other questions. Nor do you ever look at the actual like empirical facts of how finance works, how the stock market works. 
it's uh, short sellers are gambling addicts, addicts in a lot of ways, right? Because short selling has only a finite cap on, on the wins, but an infinite uh, amount of loss. Oh, I also, I want to correct my, um, my earlier quote, you know, Henwood was uh, saying that almost 10 trillion, not 20 trillion was uh, spent since 2000 in the S and P 500 on, um, stock buybacks, which is about half their, their profits, right. And 20% of all business investment. So I think that there is like a really earnest delusion about what the purpose of stock markets are. Right. And as you pointed out, it's, they're just absurd. And this bubble, as Henwood says, should be used as like an opportunity for us to think about the absurdity of us. And then for us here at TMK to get y'all to look at the larger structures that give that allowed this bubble to take place is specifically, you know, the really concentrated ownership of firms across the S&P 500 and how, um, you know, partly gave rise to the bubble, but also it speaks to the fact that the bubble is not going to dislodge their position, right? It's just going to, you know, it's going to rain shit on the retail investors, the day traders, but they are fine no matter what. That's right. And I think that is something that we need to get into is that, as I was saying, if there's any, if there's a major takeaway from the the GME spectacle, I hope it's a raising of awareness of this concentration of ownership. You know, we hear a lot about hedge funds and private equity, but I don't think we talk a lot about, I don't think people really are even like fully aware of what like asset managers and index funds are and the, and and what they their role in the financial system their their ownership stake in the market in all of these companies and i think that is something that we need to get a better understanding of uh is the rise of uh, a company like BlackRock, right? The largest asset manager in the world has uh, what trillions of dollars in asset management. Do you know the figure right off the top of your head, Ed? Uh, by March uh, 2020 was about 6.5 trillion. Yeah, I just looked it up right now. And as of like, so their 2020 annual is yeah 8.6 trillion dollars mm-hmm. um, under management. BlackRock, this Beautiful. one this one asset manager, the largest in the world, is managing, owning $8.6 trillion of assets Mm -hmm. in this one firm. Play the stock market. We could make trillions. Why make trillions when we could make billions? At the at the eve of the financial crisis, BlackRock was made in 1988. But on the eve of the financial crisis, they only had about one trillion. They were not well known inside of Washington D.C. And as we'll talk about a little bit here, but also a lot in the um, premium episode, they spent the past 20 years building a massive fucking juggernaut that sits at the center of almost every single company in the in the world, either through transactions, through asset management, through uh, risk assessment, uh, through bond markets, through, you know, uh, all sorts of assets and vehicles running on their platforms, running through their funds, running through their portfolios. Um, but it's not just them. Every single one of these uh, asset managers and the investors that are in the problem, you know, that we'll talk about in this paper, the problem with the 12 have similar models. And this is like a large chunk of how the, I think the modern 
global economy functions, right? Yeah, I mean, really lays out what the future of the global economy, corporate governance in the economy, and really just concentrations of power and wealth in society is really dependent upon you know these index funds, these asset managers. I think what our plan here is let's consider the GME spectacle as an excuse, as a ne- as a necessary reason to do a deep dive into actually understanding the structures and operations and concentration of index funds in the economy, in society, and the and the 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 kind of ripple effects that that's going to have for millions and billions of people right in in the world you know so in the premium episode the patreon episode later this week we're going to do a deeper dive into blackrock itself it's a company that we really need to spend more time focusing on i remember a a a tweet from like a while back ago um ed where you were like you know if you could personify one company in the world and then and then fight it right like what company would you do and a bunch of people had like some pretty standard responses you know like oh i'd fucking i'd personify amazon and i'd punch mm-hmm. it in the face i'd personify alphabet and i would do a fucking like a uh, stone cold stunner on them you know like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i'd fucking i would power bomb palantir mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like yeah all of those things uh definitely deserve to happen your response was vanguard mm-hmm. which is the second largest uh asset manager in the world right now has massive stakes in a lot of the tech industry um mm-hmm. as well as just massive stakes in a lot of companies right because again they own the S&P 500 right they mm-hmm. own huge stakes in all of these companies my response was blackrock right like i would fucking like I would put BlackRock in a headlock is what I would do. <laughs> and uh, and I, I think I think both of that needs to happen. And we're going to have the world's greatest tag team ever. And it's going to be yes. Ed and I uh, just walking. The Undertaker in. and Kane. That's right. That's right. Going to be walking into the ring with our, with our music playing. Jeremy will th- figure out what that song is and drop it in right now. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and we're coming in and we're, we're flying off the high rope with the fucking people's elbow right mm-hmm. on top of BlackRock and Vanguard. in the in the patreon episode what we're gonna do is we're gonna get deeper into blackrock as well as this like crazy financial infrastructural system that it's created called aladdin that Mm -hmm. i didn't know much about until we started doing the research for this episode and oh my god bro you are not gonna want to the wildness here if you think if you think blackrock owning you know and managing 8.6 trillion dollars of assets is crazy wait till you hear about aladdin uh which is just like this this foundational financial infrastructure that basically makes the whole system run owned and created by blackrock of right. course mm-hmm. uh 
Sure but for this episode, I think we need to get a better sense of the structure at play of, of just what are index funds, how are they operating in the economy? And, and I mean, what's, what's the near future looking like under a world owned and run by index funds? And uh, there, there's what we're going to do is there's this uh, amazing paper that I found um, called The Future of Corporate Governance, The Problem of Twelve by John Coates, who's a professor of law and economics out of Harvard Law School, but taking this really deep critical analysis of uh, what he calls, you know, this really underemphasized problem in modern finance, which is the rise uh, and concentration of index funds. I like his idea, the problem of 12, because he's not mincing words here. What he means by that is simply the likelihood that in the near future, roughly 12 individuals will have practical power over the majority of US public companies. Now, I, I don't think we can understate that. It's worth emphasizing again, right? That control of most public companies, that is the wealthiest organizations in the world with more revenue than most states will soon be concentrated in the hands of a dozen or fewer people. It's going to be beautiful. I mean, that's a beautiful world. <laughs> this, is the re- this is the real utopia. This is the real utopia. So this, this episode is part of our real utopian series. <laughs> that, yeah, exactly. This is a, a real capitalist utopia where, you know, everybody, it's, you know, it's, it's really narrow minded to just try to parody capitalism with, oh, we'll only have maybe two types of food or two types of goods or two types of services. Um, you know, it doesn't matter how many number of services we're going to have. We'll have 12 owners. And that's a lot. It's not too little. Um, so you can't really say it's a monopoly or an oligopoly, but it's not too many. So you don't have to worry about, is this identical substitute good different than this identical substitute good? This choice is diversity, right? Mm-hmm. Something that BlackRock is not very good at, but that's another. That's, that's, another, that's for another. What do, you, another what do you mean, Ed? How can you not? How can you not be diversified if you own the entire market, right? Exactly. <laughs> that's the ultimate diversification. Exactly. <laughs> and oh, you know, man. this problem of the twelve is also it's a very interesting issue, also related to I think you know corporate governance, right? This question about not only how corporations are going to be managed and who controls public companies, right? You know, the wealthiest organizations in the world that have, in some cases, more revenue than entire countries, right? But it also is asked questions about, all right, these institutions with large amounts of power, they derive, they are like in positions to skim benefits from any decision, Um from whether that be from a board decision, whether that be from some move that increases revenues or income or benefits to shareholders. Uh, they have you know, huge incentive to leave boards and managers with existing discretion, right? And so you know, this would leave, you know, at the first hand or at first glances, you know, the paper talks about this might make us think that, look, you know, indexation is not really that significant and that it would make it harder, you know, for corporate governance to be controlled by the, by a small group of uh, people, right? But when you dig a little bit deeper as he does in here, right, it's, it's that indexation and concentration uh, reduce, but they don't solve problems to separation of ownership and control, right? Index funds are like, you know, assumed 
to have been most analyses of index funds, right? We'll assume that, okay, they make like, a, they spend a lot of money to influence companies. They neglect the economies of scale or, you know, the ability of large, you know, the larger and larger a firm gets, the more influence it has. They neglect, you know, the ability to threaten, you know, board members to, you know, threaten them to fall in line. Uh, they overlook all of these things and instead focus on something called the median vote, right? The idea that you can make crucial decisions using swing votes in these companies, right? Hmm. But indexation is, as we've seen since the 2008 financial crisis, also shifting more and more to this passive investing model, right? Hmm. And also flipping that a bit, right? By having investors and portfolio managers kind of give up a control of their portfolios, to guarantee higher than market uh, returns uh, or higher than average market returns. And at the same time, right, with basically signing off on the concentration of economic power, decision-making into algorithmic hands and algorithmic hands that are increasingly concentrated in a few and incredibly powerful firms, these, these 12. And I liked his explanation of why it's 12, right? That's not only why it's 12. And he chose that not only in the sense that like, that is, you know, essentially the number of firms here, but also that like, in a really interesting way, kind of mirrors um, the fact that like, 12 is the number of a board, right? That's like a company's board is 12 people normally. What he's saying is that, you know, for any given public company, you know, that that number of, of who owns it, you know, the concentration might be smaller or, or it might be a little bit larger, but it, it is typically the size of a public company's board. And so in effect, indexation is concentrating power over all public companies in the hand of one board-sized group, right? It, it, it lends itself to some wild conspiratorial thinking smoky room yeah smoky room you know and and when you when you when you're learning about it, it starts seeming a little less wild right where it's like you know there there's a there's a global board right and right. that's these asset managers that's these index funds there's a global board of corporate global capitalism you know blackrock uh in particular right which is the largest so there's like you know there's the big three right there's blackrock there's vanguard and there's state street those three companies combined own massive amounts you know we're, we're talking like 30 percent of a lot of companies uh, is owned by just those three index funds right with with blackrock owning uh, like double the amount of Vanguard and Vanguard owning double the amount of State Street, more or less, right? More or less. Maybe we should talk a little bit before we get into that. What is an index and what does an index fund do? You mentioned passive investing, which I think is a really crucial thing here, right? Because we've got passive investing and patient capital. Ed, can you tell us a little bit about what is an index fund and what, what does it mean to do passive investing with patient capital? So the idea behind an index fund is that it's an index of stocks handpicked usually by some portfolio manager, right? Um, because they belong in some hypothetical category, right? So the prominent ones, Standard & Poor's 500, you know, Dow Jones Industrial Average. You have these groups uh, of of stocks that are consolidated. Their their annual you know tr uh, prices, their weekly, monthly, daily prices, hourly prices are tracked, averaged, um, and that is what you'll watch rise and fall, right? 
you know, index funds can be created essentially by any sort of category or investment vehicle that you're looking at. You can do it by stocks, right? Of course, but you can also do it by bonds, right? Municipal bonds, corporate bonds. You can do it by sector, right? So you can do tech, you can do uh, finance, you could do utilities or healthcare. Then you are essentially just looking at when you turn that index into an index fund, you're looking into a, a group of investments, right? A pool of capital that you'll have some investors park their money into that sector or into that specific category, right? So the fund managers in this case are going to park their money into that category's assets. And what, so it could be bonds, it could be, you know, healthcare stocks, it could be technology stocks. Whatever the underlying you know, assets for the index are is what they're going to be putting it into. Passive management emerges when, you know, let's say that you have the index fund manager where the money is, you know, they're constantly moving the money around, right? Changing where the capital is being invested, how it's being distributed among the portfolio. That's an actively managed fund, right? Passive mm-hmm. funds are ones that are generally just put into a specific index and only change occasionally. Sometimes this is done for algorithms. Increasingly, this is done with algorithms, actually. Oh, we, right? got, we got the podcats making an appearance. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ed, Ed, got some, Ed got some new cats, and they, they are feisty. You want to say hi? Huh? You want to say hi, Nancy? <laughs> he was begging to come out of my lap. <laughs> he's on the chair. Is he figured it was too far for him to make a jump? And he's like, "Please, <laughs> please just let me get there." And the key with passive management is passive management is not exclusively index funds, right? It's it's this idea of putting the money somewhere, parking it, right? But you can, but passively manage index funds, for example, those of BlackRock's or of Vanguard's or of other large asset managers are algorithmic, right? And they just sit in a specific place and have their capital redistributed occasionally, but not usually. And it's usually not one that doesn't, and when changes happen, they're not really changes that are responsive to larger conditions, trends, pressures. Um, They're just done at the behest of slow moving objectives, right? Mm -hmm. So- it's riding yeah. that that line, right? Like if the line mm-hmm. keeps going up, then why try to bet against the line? Just just hop on board. Right, right. And as you know, and as the essay, I think, you know, kind of nails down, right, this, the way in which funds are distributed or being organized, right, is something to pay attention to, right? Because uh, they are immediate places where political and corporate and economic power can get entangled sometimes permanently, right? Where the interest of a polity, the interest of a country can run into the way in which funds are distributed and underwriting huge sectors of the economy, right? Where policy can be effectively vetoed by the fact that capital is just not going to respond. Hey, hey, come here. We got a cat attack. Cat attack. Anansi is just adding some levity to a really heavy topic here. <laughs> you know, there are huge problems that are, that can still emerge with this entanglement, right? You can have corporate law increasingly being decided by, by the whims of a few, a uh, select few, you know, concentrations of 
corporate power. You can have laws and regulations governing mutual funds and other investment vehicles and financial institutions being rewritten and allowing them to have more power and say in vetoing political decisions and policy decisions, right? And a good example is climate change, right? The concentration of capital in capital extractive industries like fossil fuels allows industries like coal to exist longer than they might otherwise, even with state subsidies, because you have some funds that are throwing money into them, regardless mm -hmm. of uh, market trends, larger market trends, right? And you have some funds that are supporting the exploration and the development of fossil fuel resources, right? This is one of the big concerns with you know, the indexation and the growth of passive investment in the larger economy, right? That also comes with this problem of the 12. Whether or not it is okay to have capital and the, the massive amounts of power that come with it, you know, increasingly insulated from the political whims or from the whims of the population in various countries. Yeah, I mean, as, you know, as Coates puts it, right, like indexation reflects this this slow but steady victory of of a simple set of financial ideas, right? Which you've which you really nailed here. Which is, you know, as he puts it, few investors can beat the market, right? And and few among those who uh, who cannot can identify those who can. That's a simple idea, right there, right? Is that like an actively managed fund is trying to beat the market, right? Like they're they're picking and choosing what corporations, what stocks, what bonds to include in their portfolio so that they can get higher returns than just the whole market as itself, right? Then, you know, then the, the growth of the S&P 500 or the Dow, jo Dow Jones Industrial Average, right? Like, you know, they're trying to beat the market. But if you ever look into the actual performance of these like actively managed hedge funds, um, financial advisors, right? Like, a lot of times their returns are actually below market, right? They're, they are not beating the market. And those that are uh, above market, a lot of times, as Coates puts it, right, like cannot even really identify who or why or how they're beating the market. There's some chaos and some randomness going on there. And so what indexation kind of solves that problem by saying that, you know, so buying just, we'll simply buy a full array of available stocks you know, and that generally earns the highest risk-adjusted return, particularly when you take the net of investment cost, like uh, advisory fees, right? Like, so an investor into an exchange-traded fund, into BlackRock or into Vanguard or into any of these index funds, they also come with like really, really low advisory fees because there's not a lot of active investment going on there, right? And so like, rather than paying, you know, a one, two, 3% fee on, on your investment for, you know, uh, for some active advisor to be picking and choosing what goes in the portfolio, some, uh, you know, companies like BlackRock and Vanguard charge a like, 0.1% fee, right? A fraction of a percentile. And so when you take that, all of a sudden, yeah, indexation seems like the way to go. And it creates this vicious or this, well, virtuous cycle for them, vicious cycle for us, right? In that mm -hmm. they just keep getting more money invested in them, which allows them to grow larger, which means that the assets under management balloon up to that like $8.6 trillion range that, you know, BlackRock is in which means that they have even more control over the market and they get even more returns as the line keeps going up and it just creates this perpetual cycle. Um, and so you you get this like 
massive momentum and growth of index funds, uh, which justifies the growth of indexation, which creates these index funds to get larger and so on and so forth, right? It, mm-hmm. It's this it's this cycle, which, you know, means that a company, you know, that these companies, their stakes in uh, all publicly traded companies grows larger and larger, right? It might have, maybe it was what, like 1%, like BlackRock might have had like 1% um, stake in all the S&P 500 companies. But now that's getting up to like 7, 8, 9%. Mm-hmm. A stake in these companies, right? Yeah. This this indexation also is part of these other, there are a few other trends, right, that I think also supercharge it or mix right into it, right, that, that build up on indexation as he talks about, right? Now indexation supercharges the concentration of capital inside of these index funds, right? And inside of, you know, passively managed places with low fees where, you know, people are just piling on the capital, right? You also have the emergence of private equity, right? Which, you know, has a similar, you know, set of ideas, right? That traditional form of dispersed ownership, as he puts it, is could be bettered, at least for some companies, through a different set of institutional arrangement, prominently a fund concentrating ownership among a relatively small number of sophisticated investors and concentrating control with a professional management firm, coupled with a commitment by the firm to return all invested capital fund investors on a five or 10 year cycle. And he maps this out as part of like a larger sort of push against the idea that public companies dispersed ownership in this country going back to the 1970s um, is a valid, desirable form of governance. Yeah, you know, it's in the 20th century, you begin to see more hostile bids and hostile takeovers. It's, and it's in the 20th century, you begin to see, you know, really debt leveraged buyouts. It's that's, you know, around the same time that you start to see the rise of investor, of institutional investors, right? These massive uh, concentrated conglomerates or companies whose you know, primary purpose seems to be taking as many slices as possible. And all of this gets even more amplified by you know, his read of globalization, right? Um, which is, uh, you know, in his telling the the opening up of worldwide trade, right? And this is not simply the, the standard neoliberal sense of free market trade. He's also speaking about changes in international law, right? That have had direct effects in reordering how production occurs, restructuring multinational companies, either to take advantage of taxes or to take advantage of labor laws, to restructure their supply chains, uh, to build on, you know, exotic interpretations of law to do joint ventures or outsourcing. These sorts of things are also as important in corporate governance as the emergence of concentrated ownership rationales like indexation and private equity, because it's these that shift the balance of power within firms and also within the larger you know, equity markets and capital markets. Uh, they delay the path to IPOs. They result in a decrease in IPOs. They do result in a decrease of the number of companies. But at the same time, they don't result in a decrease in the amount of capital that's going in um, mm-hmm. to the, into the markets. But they also, now this capital, increasingly concentrated, increasingly mobile, increasingly politicized, is able to you know, deregulate securities law in the United States is able to rationalize this deregulation as uh, as you know, taking hold of primordial forces in capitalism and allowing them to go forth and to, and to and to usher in a new era of prosperity, right? 
and and that you see is wrapped up in some of the rhetoric about globalization. Uh, the this idea that globalization is going to help uh, knock down some of the stuffy institutions, bureaucracies, regulations that have prevented capital from freely flowing across borders and even within countries to allow corporations to revolutionize their ownership, revolutionize various industries, the relationship with the global south, uh, to generate more profit, more returns, to innovate new private equity structures. All of this comes back to to make each of, you know, these three factors each feed into one another, right? They're all they're all happening independently, but they're also feeding into each other, right? Because as, as one develops, as globalization or as the weakening of international regulations occurs, now you have more room overseas for other concentrations of capital to reduce their own taxes, right? Whether it's through gap capital gains, whether it's through, uh, you know, regulations about the integrity of their financial institutions to the system, uh, whether it's the ability of the capital to cross borders, right? All of this feeds into the downward pressure on distributed ownership, on IPOs, on uh, public you know, companies not being owned by a handful of investors. Yeah, and there's a really great distinction here between the kind of dispersal control of companies, right? Where like, you know, a lot of smaller investors, retail investors or smaller institutions own smaller, a, a lot of them own a lot of small stakes in companies, right? Um, which creates a kind of almost, you know, almost a more democratic mode of, of like vote sharing in a, on a company's board um, and so on and so forth, right? And, and then the purpose of indexation or, or rather a consequence of indexation, we, we could say it's a purpose of it as well, um, mm -hmm. is to, as you said, concentrate that control into a, a few small hands. This is that this is that problem of twelve, right? Where there's you know a handful of individuals who own large stakes, and so for Coates, the 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 real problem that he's emphasizing here is what that means for corporate governance, right? When you have uh, the governance of not just one corporation but all corporations being vastly influenced by a small collective of people. I mean, we can see this in you know like. BlackRock CEO, Larry Fink, who I think we need to understand is like the CEO of all other CEOs, right? <laughs> <laughs> he, every year he writes this annual letter to CEOs. It's explicitly uh, addressed to the CEOs of the world where he essentially lays out what he thinks is the most important issue that all companies ought to be uh, focusing on, that they need to be getting in line with, right? So this is essentially a, a memo from the man behind the man behind the man behind the throne, right? Saying, yeah. this, is, this is what I want you all to be focusing on. This is what I want you all to be thinking about. Uh, and people read that letter to, the, to CEOs that Larry Fink puts out every year, and they follow it, right? They know they have to follow it because if they don't, then BlackRock might start exercising some of its vote control on these companies' boards. It mm -hmm. might start, uh, it might start enforcing that in various different ways. Coates in his paper gives a really good example of what this means for this disconnection from um, control in corporate governance from investment into the corporations, right? Because when, when you're investing uh, into one of these exchange traded funds, 
yeah, you might receive some returns, you know, you might receive the returns from that. And you do, right? Like they do uh, oftentimes match or exceed return rates for the market. So they're pretty safe, very risk adjusted return makes complete sense that like, you know, you want to, you want a long-term investment. You could do a whole lot worse than just putting it into one of these exchange traded funds into putting it into a passive investor. But what that means is that you give up all of your control and everyone else gives up all of their control over this over those rights to the stocks that you that your money owns a part of Coates has a really good way of, of uh, explaining this so he says the individual investors in Vanguard for example were active in choosing Vanguard and whether to retain it and have rights as shareholders of Vanguard's fund including some information about how Vanguard acts on behalf of the fund as an investor in, let's say, Apple. But the Vanguard fund investors have no rights as shareholders of Apple. And the only thing they can effectively do with their Vanguard fund rights is to sell, you know, redeem their shares, get that liquid money from it, which entails not only selling their interest in Apple's shares, but also all of the shares of the other 499 companies in the S&P 500. It is Vanguard's employees who exercise the rights associated with shares of Apple and all the other companies. You know, so let's say the beneficiary of uh, of an employer's pension plan um, have even fewer rights. If you work for some company and your pension, your retirement plan is heavily invested into these funds, right, into Vanguard or into BlackRock. You have even fewer rights since you typically cannot choose to exit Vanguard, right? The choice remains with the pensions trustees, the people who are making decisions about where to invest the pension. Um, and, and who, you know, and that might be your employer, your boss, or it might be another institution, such as a bank trust department, right? So what what Coates' example shows is that real world ownership creates these kind of like tiers of, of relationship to these investments, right? And what it does is it concentrates all of the ownership rights of that stock into Vanguard, into BlackRock, into these asset managers, right? And in return, you get some risk-adjusted uh, long-term returns, but but that's all, right? That's all you get. And in return, what they get is not only those returns on their investment, but all of the power over corporate governance. And as we've talked a lot about here, as we'll talk a lot more about, right? Corporate governance is the way that the world is governed, right? That, that matches... Um, and exceeds the power of states, the, the power of your vote. Uh, you know, the corporate governance is really the realm of true power uh, in society. You know, there, there's a lot of evidence backed by empirical research and a growing consensus among political scientists that the United States is now far more of an oligarchy than a democracy, right? The general public has little influence over uh, which policies are put into law, while the preferences of the wealthy elite are almost always supported by policy and reflected in policy, right? So in that, in that kind of traditional way of thinking about power in terms of the state, in terms of the government, we're, we're in an oligarchy. That is even more hyper-concentrated when we're thinking about corporate governance, corporate power, the real arteries of power in society. And that's, that's not just in the US, right? That's globally, right? The power in global corporate capitalism is itself 
uh, an autocracy, right? It's a boardroom of people who have the deciding vote more, more times than not and what a company does and who it chooses as its CEO, how it uh, guides investment, how it does payment structures, right? All of these crucial questions that, that a corporation's board is making decisions about, these index funds, these asset managers have more often than not the deciding vote, the swing vote, the median vote in those decisions, what they say goes. Right. You know, and I think this gets us with thinking about why it is that indexation lends itself so well to passivity in the investing, right? You know, the example that Jathan gave uh, really, I think, hammers home how complex it can get when we're talking about who owns what and also why ownership, you know, as um, I think as uh, Justice Leo Strine, who's quoted in the paper says, you know, separation of ownership from ownership, right? Where you erect multiple legal barriers between all the different types of legal entities that block off and cut off specific different legal rights that allow people to get information from or exercise other rights that are supposed to be bundled into holding a stock, right? Because it gets filtered through all these dimensions, right? And these dimensions and levels are important distinctions in this paper. Dimensions kind of speaks to an activity, right? A buy, a sell, or sale of a stock, you know, vote that's associated with the share. Um, these are activities that investor can engage in. And these are dimensions, right, of, you know, active or passive investment. But also there are levels, right? And the levels speak to the legal entity, the legal person, corporations, trusts, what have you, that are layered in, in different relations with each other because they own one another, right? You know, and so dimensions get tricky and are lending themselves to just simply giving up the rights or a slow erosion of your ability to claim certain rights, um, usually associated with owning a stock, because you can have investments, right? But then the dimensions diffract essentially into, all right, the right to select an investment, to monitor it, to gather information about it, to analyze it, uh, to sell it, to access other rights, Investors, as you know, as the paper points out, can have rights under contract, tort, entity, bankruptcy, securities, other laws. There are rights for creditors, there are rights for debtors, there are rights to investments to get scheduled principal interest uh, and principal and interest. There can be acceleration, foreclosure, collateral, triggering of cross defaults, bankruptcy. There can be rights for common equity, you know, to vote in the election of uh, directors or on specified transactions, or to enforce duties, or to obtain information, or to initiate governance. I mean, there's a whole host of different ways in which legal a law or a legal entity can come between and cleave off um, an activity or uh, that an investor can yield, right? So with the rise of passive investing, or maybe a bit on the background of it, is that, you know, it goes further back. Corporate law also has a history that stretches further back, right? And passive investing's history can be seen as one that is pushed forward or been defined to an early extent, right, by people who had, individuals who had uh, the ability to invest in the first place, right, to monitor information, to use the rights and access them, and to, to innovate or to create these early corporate structures, these collective investment structures, right, whether they were trusts or whether they were corporations themselves, to try to get a specific rate of return on an investment, whether that is through some joint venture whether that is in an overseas expedition, whether that's in bond issued from a, 
uh, government. These are early examples of the ways in which levels and dimensions that are talked about here can start to already complicate ownership. Then it goes further in that, you know, over time, these vehicles, these passive investment vehicles where you just put your money in a trust or you put your money in some vehicle that just where it sits there, right? You know, that's passive, but it's fragmented. The security markets are not too developed. There's no way for that then to be used to oversee where funds are going to be distributed and whatnot. There were no indexes to guide the selections, right? But over time, as they grow in size and complexity, so too the markets, right? And the ability to gain information from them, the ability to integrate them into the large, into other capital or equity markets, right? And mm -hmm. so by the early 20th century, you start to see the ball rolling here where there are billions of dollars of assets under management. A small part of the equity markets, but it's, you know, a sizable one, right? Today, I thought this part of the of the paper was a little ridiculous where it's like, yeah, you know, $7 billion under management in today's dollars, that's anywhere between $78 billion and $1.2 trillion. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> it depends on how you count the dollars. Um and, you know, as a result, right, you're <laughs> just a trillion dollar margin of error in the yeah. calculation. And, you know, so, you know, here, even then you're starting to see you're starting to see more complex ways of realizing passive investment. Right. We can have contracts. We can have subsidies that are, you know, over time doled out. We can have regulation maybe that will specify how trust or how other legal entities have to invest the money. And mm -hmm. then these can then result in, you know, closed investment companies, uh, mutual funds, right? Today, mutual funds are, well, to clarify, mutual funds today are open, right? Because the shares are continuously issued and redeemed at, at a certain value, right? you know, as they talk about. But redeemable shares are, you know, are why mutual funds are different from other corporations, right? Like trusts or investment companies, older innovations mm. uh, that have emerged because you can redeem them, right? Because you can take those shares and you can bring them back. And, you know, the, another way in which the investment company emerges here is, you know, just starts to distinguish itself is in convincing Congress in 1936, right? To exempt them from getting tax double, right? From double dipping, essentially. Mm. Um, so there was special tax treatment where the marginal rates, were, you know, as they started to approach 90%, God bless them, started to get, you know, have exemptions or loopholes opened up for corporations so that they weren't uh, paying too much of their money to the government or to the Fed. Then the third, and I think an important one today, Coates lays out, is that investment companies started to get regulated by specific bodies after a long study by the ICA, the Inter Investment Company Act, and the Investment Advisors Act, the IAA, you know, both drafted by the SEC and passed in the 1940. And so what this did was it mandated a set of really strict capital controls on financial subsector and also on the fund industry, right? The, specifically, these laws and the regulations were supposed to limit, you know, how many, uh, how much registered, you know, investment companies could actually borrow, required them to disclose the capital and allowed them and required basically bans of conflict of interest transactions, something that is non-existent today. Let, let me hit you with some numbers here just to really like emphasize this hyper concentration of control over corporate governance, right? And all of the practical problems that come out of that, right? The influence, the conflicts of interest, uh, the, the shadowy cabals, right? Uh, I mean, so, so consider that in 2009, 19% of all assets in U.S. equity funds were managed passively, right? What's that number up to now? 
Uh, and you know, this is, we're talking like 2018 numbers. So surely it's bigger right now. 44% of assets in US domiciled equity funds are managed passively, right? That should not be allowed. That should That's not be allowed. <laughs> Let me hit you with some bigger numbers. The bottom line is that indexed funds now own mm. more than 20% and perhaps as much as 30% of or more of nearly all US public companies. As Coates lays out, if the current growth rates were to continue as the way that they have been for the last, you know, 10, 10 or so years, the entire US market would be held by index funds no later than 2030. I you love know, those numbers. Uh, and, and, you know, Coates says that's, uh, that's, that's not going to happen because eventually some equilibrium will be reached. Hopefully. But the fact of the matter is we don't know what that equilibrium is going to be, right? Like, even if this trend flattens, the majority of most companies will soon be, if not already, owned by indexed funds, you know? All right, let me hit you with some other numbers here. Mm -hmm. So from the perspective of these portfolio companies, over 31% of the S&P 500 companies, so the 500 biggest most prestigious, most powerful companies in the U.S. market. Over 31% of these companies have four or fewer shareholders holding an aggregate of 20% or more of the stock. The big three. That's efficiency. <laughs> the, big, the big three index funds: Vanguard, State Street, BlackRock. Let's throw in Fidelity here as well. Um, together, these companies own. 60% of the five plus percentage blocks of stocks in the S&P 500. So what that means is that shareholders that own five or more percent of stocks in a company, over 60% of those five plus uh, percentile stocks are owned by a few index funds. Mm -hmm. And we can see these numbers playing out when we look at, you know, the top shareholders in, um, in the big five tech companies in the world, right? So if we look at numbers for like uh, Alibaba, Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, Tencent, these, you know, these big seven uh, share, you know, companies, five of them in the US, two in China, you look at their top five shareholders and it's the same people over and over, right? Vanguard Group owns 8%. BlackRock owns 5%. State Street owns 4%, right? Like, like they just have these constant percentiles. One of the only real differences here is Amazon, where the, the top shareholder is Jeff Bezos, who owns 15% of Amazon stock, which is why, you know, uh, but, but that is actually very unique in the sense of these big companies that Jeff Bezos has maintained such a massive uh, ownership stake in Amazon and therefore has, uh, you know, deciding vote. And that's also where all of his wealth comes from is the fact that he owns 15% of Amazon. But that is really unique as a, as a way of, of doing ownership in a company for Bezos to maintain such a large stake, right? Like you look at Alphabet, you look at Apple, you look at Facebook, you look at Microsoft, it's all institutional owners, right? None of he the knows. He knows. He said, fuck BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street and Fidelity and all the other ghouls and their advisory firms, the proxy advisory firms and the median votes that they all occur. I want, I want to be, I want to be the institutional investor. 
That's right. Terminator Bezos will not be dic- <laughs> his his whims will not be dictated by uh, Larry Fink, <laughs> but all the other companies, all of the major, the top five major shareholders for all these other massively powerful, most wealthy companies to ever exist in the world um, are all institutional investors. They're all just just names of firms, not names of people, names of firms. Simply cannot overstate what this, the extent of this concentration and the, the implications of this concentration, right? I mean, it's, it's not the fact that there's like a willful collusion, right? Where like the CEOs of Vanguard and State Street and BlackRock are like getting together and deciding what's going to happen. They can't do that publicly because that doesn't look good. And it's actually, uh, it's actually runs up against (laughs) the SEC. Uh, So, you know, it's a little illegal, but what they do uh, do is these groups of, of index funds will do things like meet together and you know, they'll have these carefully confined discussions about policies, not companies, but in such discussions, they form and share views on how uh, important issues in corporate governance should be approached in specific instances. Again, not having to do with any particular companies they own stakes in. So there's no collusion. There's no, uh, it doesn't run up against SEC's rules around groups of investors colluding because they're simply having an ideas discussion. They're simply talking Mm -hmm. in the abstract about policies. And then they, you know, and they'll form policies which can, you know, more or less be tailored to specific circumstances, and then they'll vote accordingly when given the uh, the chance to vote on these issues. And so through this process, they achieve a significant amount of coordination without mm-hmm. any kind of illegal collusion over many, if not all topics on which shareholders routinely vote about, right? And, right. The, and this is also part of what makes them passive is they don't need... Uh, huge departments of of compliance and monitoring of research of voting right they all they do is they simply form blanket policies and and positions on issues of corporate governance and then just kind of automatically vote accordingly right and i think that also brings us to this point in the paper where there's an attempt to talk about yeah some of the implications or limitations of indexing right you know, uh, where, like you said, they just they just simply don't have the resources to like actively manage, right? Index providers kind of have to be hands off for the reason that, you know, they have hundreds or thousands of companies and they cannot track everything that they're doing quarterly, right? You know, they do have a staff that is dedicated to corporate governance and monitoring of, you know, a key number of those companies, right? So, you know, what do you do in this sense? You can't, like you said, you can't meet, you can't collude, you can't craft the policies though. And the policies are really important because these policies, right, uh, they can research issues, right? You know, I can look at Apple, I can look at Alphabet, I can look at Santander, I can look at all these other companies and say, okay, should they have a staggered board? Should the mm-hmm. CEO be paid based on uh, the shareholder returns or what should their bonus incentives look like? Uh, should the company disclose this or that? Should it take a stand against climate change? Like These are things that they can meet and talk about and delegate and find ways to, as generally as possible, filter down to 
the rest of the portfolio, whether it's through advisors, whether it's through proclamations from the mountaintop, like that letter to the CEOs that Fink does, you know, this process, they can also do something where they meet with representatives, right? Uh, sometimes at Harvard Law School, which is where the author of this paper comes from, right? Uh, sometimes they can have meetings where they'll, you know, also have mock or situation, you know, discussions that come pretty close to like how they'd actually vote, right? You know, this like indexation uh, has or imposes limits on like active management, but it's through this passive system that they actually end up accumulating more power, right? Because now they can act, they have this swing vote, they have the median vote, they have a network of proxies, they have, uh, you know, a network of places to uh, disseminate issues, memos of understanding, stuff like that from, um, and they can you know, they are called derogatively sometimes governistas, right? You know, a community of corporate governance activists, right? That can include academics, public pension fund staff, gadflies, the staff of these proxy advisory firms like uh, ISS or Glass-Lewis that, you know, pass down the proclamations to um, and, and kind of create like, a, you know, something approaching a looser primordial nervous system, right? Where ideas are disseminated, accepted, integrated, advocated for, and not necessarily colluded. Collusion is here, but there is like these are highly aligned signals, yeah. not collusion, yeah. <laughs> right? Not, not instructions, just they're sending highly aligned signals. Right. And I, and I think like this speaks to another concern, right? Where index providers are also able to exploit economies of scale, right? In the asset, asset management and governance, right? So they benefit from the fact that there are fixed costs informing policy views on governance issues, right? So they all, you know, I, you know, like I, I think one example might be, you know, like, you know, as laid out in the paper, while some marginal costs must further be encouraged to apply those policies to particular companies, just as judges must make efforts to apply laws to specific cases. However, the fixed cost of substantial can be spread just like other aspects of asset management over all public companies, right? So a given portfolio company, the growth of the size of the fund will result in more shares being held. This is why concentration resulting from indexing is growing so fast. And for each additional share and each additional dollar of asset under management, there is no additional cost of forming a view on a policy issue and applying it to the same company. These effects are reflected in the increased correlation in shareholder volts, particularly among the big three index firms. So as you just get larger and larger, as you have more views or as you have more portfolio companies, it costs less for you to just disseminate your views through all the companies. You do not have to keep inventing the wheel over and over again. You can just disseminate the view. It has more influence because you have more companies under it. So this, you know, pushes back, you know, that what seems to be a limitation of actively managing them, which is that you can't have the staff to do it, ends up just being something that gives way to a real uh, way of passively or indirectly managing portfolios, which is just by, you know, building these influence networks, building these policies, disseminating them after you have accumulated huge portfolios. That's right. I mean, God, it's, it's, it's bleak. I, I was also talking to a friend, you know, last week, kind of doing all this research and reading on index funds. And it's just so wild because it's like, we know as critics of capitalists, as good Marxists analyzing the operations of capitalism. You know, we know the system is cooked. We know it's fucked. We know it's fucking toxic uh, to the core. But then you actually read into uh, like how it's happening and you're like, 
holy shit, this is so much worse than I imagined it yeah. was, you know? You you read into the fact these few index funds control, you know, the top blocks of stocks in like most companies. Mm-hmm. You read into and see that there is just like this global board of 12, this problem of 12 people who are through these highly aligned signals and influence networks and these policies and, 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 and you know, and voting accordingly are making vast decisions about the actual operations of like nearly every corporation in the world. The economy is an engine. They are sitting behind the the steering wheel, right? They are driving it, but doing so by simply, you know, putting gas in the in the tank, right? Oh no, we're just passively investing. Um, and we're passively saying, here's what we would like people to do. Um, and, you know, don't make us yank the steering wheel because we can and we will just keep the economy running mm-hmm. how we want it to mm-hmm. keep that engine going. The amount of concentration here is so mind boggling. <laughs> and It's ridiculous. It is so And we wild. didn't even get to really the second half of this part one of like a three part, four part essay series also about this problem of 12 and how that it, it how it, it's emerged. This is really only like the surface level scratching issue of index of indexed funds, right? How how capital has accumulated in such a way that they have an outsized influence, even though they do not have the ability to actively manage. And in fact, passive management has just given them tools to, to dominate things even more. I mean, if you're the index fund manager and you cannot manage it, you know, but you are the the company that has it, the assets under management, right? You can manage it by not managing it. I think Coates puts the problem of 12 perfectly here when he says index fund managers are in a position to increase or decrease the incidence and severity of externalities and rent sinking. A small number of unelected agents operating largely behind closed doors are increasingly important to the lives of millions and billions who barely know of the existence, much less the identity or inclinations or interests of those agents. Mm-hmm. I mean, come yeah. on. <laughs> you know, wrapping it back around to, to GME, right, is the fact that it's 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 not an accident that they had a 13% stake in GameStop and benefited, uh, you know, hand over fist for it. And that's not even the main point here, because that $2.9 billion windfall they got from the, the GME rocket ship is nothing to them. It's a rounding error in the assets that they already have under management. They probably would not have even noticed it if it wasn't such a newsworthy thing. And I'm sure Larry Fink saw the news and was like, huh, that's cool. Mm. Uh, Next meeting, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, when we come back down to it and we look at this, this, you know, think about what we've learned in summary, right? We've learned, we learned that passive is not passive, right? That when you think passive investment, you think the money's just sitting there somewhere off to the side, but that's not what's going on here. They're not blindly choosing stocks, right? To throw in there and ignoring them. They are actually using like actively using multiple channels to influence the public companies at all size in all kinds of ways to separate ownership from ownership, to institute policies, to undermine regulatory apparatuses, um, and that their views on governance, their opinions of CEOs, uh, their desires for policies to be implemented in industry-wide levels or corporation-wide levels, uh, their responses- Their visions of the world. Right, their their visions visions of the the world. These are all mediated 
through indexation and through passive management of funds. And that all of this is also being also interacted with, we didn't get to, but are another orbiting element, hedge funds, right? Hedge fund activists who are constantly seeking ins to get into companies and, and, and either take over them or realize a return on an investment or a capture or a bid or a takeover, you know, whatever have you. All of these are ways in which we can think of passive management and mint and passive investment is just like another means of corporate control and governance. You know, when a large company is not doing too hot, right? Hedge funds can step in, right? And try to manipulate the way that an index fund is going or manipulate the way that the, the public is going to view it or manipulate the way that other shareholders are going to view it. And this is going to have an effect on the index funds own strategy, right? But at the same time, right, the, the they're going to go about it, right? And look at the company itself, the investments, the mergers and acquisitions, compliance, the pressure on the board, like all of these are things that the institutional investor can, can and is in a position to consider that you would not expect them to be in a position to consider if they were simply passively managing assets, right? They are sitting in position... I think it might be best to think of it as like a conduit for information or in a nervous system, right? Where they can choose, you know, there are all sorts of interactions, decision-making processes, you know, system maintenance, uh, homeostasis, whatever you want to call it. There are all sorts of things that are going on at various levels of control awareness and active intervention, right? It is a mistake to look at some very viable dynamic system and say it's passive. You would not say a metabolic system is passive. You would not say some biological or chemical you know, system is passive, right? But the passive is not speaking to the mode in which it's interacting with the rest of the world, right? The passive is just speaking to the way in which the funds are being distributed or um, managed, right? Not the actual consequence of this corporate governance model. And that's key when you think about it, that passive management is not passive management of control. It's passive management of the capital. You're giving up control over the capital to another entity that then uses it to consolidate their control over the asset itself. Beautiful summing up. Beautiful summing up. I, I think that is a great place to end this episode, right? I mean, as we said, as Ed said, right, we've only scratched the surface, but understanding the, the structures and operations of indexation and of these index funds and of these asset managers is perhaps simultaneously the most underemphasized and overlooked aspect of the financial system while clearly being the most important, the most consequential aspect, right? And so our primer has given you a, a, a view into the abyss and it's stared back into you, I'm sure, just as it has to us. So what we're going to do now, we'll wrap up this episode and you are going to want to join us uh, in the Patreon episode later this week, where we're going to not only stare into the abyss, but we're going to dive straight into it by looking at BlackRock in particular, right? The world's largest asset manager, $8.6 trillion under management, uh, really leading the way, paving the way for this indexation of everything, this consolidation and concentration of power and wealth in the, in the global economy. We're going to dive deeper into BlackRock. So a lot of the stuff that we've talked about in somewhat abstract terms is going to become ever so concrete. I mean, in the way that you, you're jumping off of a building and you're hitting the BlackRock 
rock on the you know that is that is what we're going to be diving into you're going to want to stick around for that so uh, this has been your tmk for this week hopefully you all didn't lose your shirts on gme stocks uh, <laughs> and until later this week uh, we'll see you then